another episode of Building Optimal Radio. I'm Jared Gossett, and today we're going to be interviewing James Rednicki, who is a lawyer here in Texas. He specializes in residential construction and home building, and he's a shareholder of Bush Rudnicki Shelton. So I was extremely excited to interview James and was fortunate that he said yes to come on our show to be interviewed because if there is anybody, and I mean anybody, to interview regarding contracts, regarding warranty liability, and any of the legal issues that we as home builders and general contractors deal with, it's James. Because James actually authored the contracts for the Texas Association of Builders, he is the guy. Obviously, in full disclosure, there's some great information in here today, but please don't do anything without consulting your own attorney. Beyond that, I do realize that we've got listeners from around the states and from around the world. And obviously, some of the things we talk about here are specific to Texas, but I also think there are a lot of things that on some level translate to your area. Again, talk to your own attorney, but there should be some jewels and pearls of wisdom for everybody in this interview. You guys be sure to follow us on Instagram or Facebook for updates. You can also sign up for the newsletter at buildingoptimal.com. Let's jump into this interview. Okay, James, so let's break this down into a few sections and see what we can get to today. So contracts first, I think that's probably the most relevant to a lot of us right now. Talking about contracts from kind of that 50,000 foot level, cost plus versus fixed price. From a legal perspective, do you have a preference? I do. I prefer fixed price for several reasons. One is that if you're able as a builder to develop a project in a way that you can have a clear picture of what it's going to cost to build the project with proposals from your primary subs, I much prefer fixed price. And the reason is that cost plus, in my experience, causes a lot of heartache and stress often that doesn't need to exist between the builder and their client. And what I mean by that is is a project drags on and it continues and the build phase continues, obviously it gets more expensive. And often as the project gets more expensive on a cost plus contract with every draw, your client seeing what it costs, they become more and more stressed out and more apprehensive and more concerned about the budget. And that translates into your client being more involved often in your business. So if you have a cost plus contract, the client has a right to inspect essentially or audit your accounts for what you've actually been invoiced, what you've been paid. They often um, will end up asking to see canceled checks and the actual invoices from the vendors. And it just sort of creates an administrative burden and a lot of tension between you and your client. So for me, I much prefer a builder use a fixed price contract for its simplicity. It creates a lot of harmony between the builder and the client. They know what they're going to pay, and a builder has complete control over the financial accounting aspect of the job without involvement by the homeowner. In fact, a lot of litigation cases I see that happen late in the phase of construction in disputes between homeowners 
and builders, almost all of them are on cost plus contracts. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I'd never heard that, but I had definitely heard that fixed price have their benefits. And we've seen that anecdotally on our own. We prefer the fixed price. And you know, as an experienced builder, the challenge with the fixed price, obviously, is you have to have a well-defined project before you start. Right. So a lot of times I see builders, I think, and homeowners will rush to the cost plus contract because it's easier just to get started. You don't have to delay the start because, hey, it costs what it costs. You're just going to get billed whatever it costs. So we don't have to maybe refine the design or the plans as much as we should. Maybe we don't need to do a lot of pre-pricing and bids from subs to secure the cost and the estimating now as tightly as we should. And so I think it's real easy in the excitement of beginning a project just to sign a cost plus contract. At least that's my Uh, that's sort of my anecdotal observation over my career. Yeah, I can see the same thing because the times in the past where I feel like we have gotten into trouble or problems, which fortunately has been few and far between, but I almost always universally tie it back to trying to do something to accommodate a client or somebody to start a project sooner and not taking the requisite amount of time up front to do everything. And I found that that's really the most important part of the project is that upfront preparation. I couldn't agree more. I think that's great advice for builders. And I encourage builders to use what I would call a builder services agreement. It's kind of like the pre-contract to the contract where you might sign a short document, two or three pages long, in, in which you're being compensated for a set fee or an hourly fee or some small amount, not a lot of money where you're able to spend time with the homeowner defining the scope of the project so that you can enter into a really tight, well-defined fixed price contract that has a very detailed scope of the project. And as you know, if you do that, the build process goes much more smoothly and quicker. So that's the way I look at it. And um, But of course, I'm not a builder. I'm just, I'm just a lawyer that sort of sees the problems that result from maybe starting projects too quickly. That's great advice, though, about the builder services agreement. Not nearly as much as many of us as should are using that. The professional services or builder services agreement, I've heard them call both ways. Your answer kind of sets up my next question really nicely. Because with a fixed price contract, you know, one of the issues I see is that now we as the contractor or the builder can potentially get squeezed into bearing the burden of rising prices. And we're in a market actually right now where, you know, both labor and materials have really increased over the last several years. So this can cause some real budgeting issues, especially on these fixed price contracts. How do we protect ourselves against these price increases if we are in a fixed price contract with a client? There's primarily two vehicles for that in a contract, and one is that you have a clause in your contract that if the job is not started within, let's say, 30 days or 60 days of execution of the contract, that you, the builder, and the client understands that you will have to, due to the passage of time and increases of prices, reprice and reset the price of the contract based on actual price increases that you've experienced during that time. And obviously, during an up market, this is a real problem. I I mean, in Texas right now, I feel like for my clients, builder clients, and what I hear from them is that pricing for labor and materials goes up 
almost every day. At least it feels like that. And, you know, we're in that kind of market. And I've seen a lot of projects sign fixed price contracts. And then, you know, the project start is delayed 60 days or 90 days or 120 days. And usually that's related to financing. And sometimes it's related to uh, architectural control committee or, you know, property owner association approval of the project or some other reason. So the further that project's delayed from the execution of the contract to the actual start date, you know, you as a builder are already getting a lot of price pressure on your margin. So what I like to do is put in a clause in there that if the project doesn't start within a certain amount of days of execution of the contract, that the builder shall have the right to reprice those items that actually experience a price increase from when you estimated the project. It's not to be used to abuse your client with it or simply make up margin because you missed the estimation on the project, but sometimes you can have real price increases during that interim period of time. So that's one way I like to do it. And the other way is I always recommend a price escalation clause in the contract. So if you uh, price the project and during the construction of the project, you have price increases that are experienced that exceed a certain percentage of what you estimated. And you could put a blank in there. You could put 10% or 20% or whatever you and the client were comfortable with. If you experienced an actual price increase from the estimation that you received, then you would pass that on to the client. And obviously, your clients aren't thrilled about these things. But the real question up front is, who should bear the burden of an actual price increase if that occurs during the contract, because there are events that can happen. Usually we say, if something happens out of the builder's control during the contract that causes price increases in certain materials, then you get to pass that increase to your client. The obvious example would be a hurricane. You know, when Hurricane Harvey came through, if you were building a project in Dallas, Texas, or Austin, or wherever it would be during that time, even though you weren't directly impacted by Hurricane Harvey, Obviously, the profit on the house you were building for your client would be significantly impacted in certain material categories. So the way I like to approach that price escalation clause is is with examples like that. If you experience something that causes those types of price increases, then you as a builder will have to pass that clause onto the client. I, I don't know that I've ever seen much pushback on that clause from a client's perspective to the builder. It seems to me that it's fundamentally fair that it's in the contract. Right. Well, and especially if you've got some sort of band around it to where you say the builder will burden up to whatever you're talking about, that arbitrary amount, 10% or 20%. So that way there's it still holds the integrity of a fixed price to some extent. It's just putting some kind of outer limits on it, which makes right, sense. Right. Right. And the best example of that right now are these, I guess, what we don't know will be the actual tariffs on certain commodities imported into the United States like aluminum and steel. So if you you know if you're doing a Galvalume roof right now and even though the tariffs are not yet in effect the price of that product at anywhere you would purchase it's probably already gone up 10 or 15%. So, you know, you, the, there's unexpected things occur that you as the builder should not be burdened with. At least that's my opinion, but I really only represent builders. So Well, that makes sense. We're talking about kind of the monetary compensation from a project delay or a project delayed start. Are there any 
other remedies in terms of just simply during the course of a project, oftentimes, you know, a client might drag their feet on some issue or selection or start requesting a lot of changes. What remedies or protections do we have to try to help keep a project going so that we can get in and out, which is obviously such a key to builder success? Yeah, you you guys have a real challenge. You know, builders have a real challenge. They sort of have to surf the area between pleasing your customer and getting the project done. And that often is a very difficult area to navigate because it's a pretty tight space. And what I mean by that is exactly what you're talking about. So many delays, we as clients, if I was building a home with a builder, obviously if my home's delayed and I don't see people at the project and things aren't happening, my natural tendency is to blame the builder. But it's often your client's problem. It's the homeowner's problem. They don't make selections timely. So in a contract, you should have a selection clause. So there should be something in the contract that specifically states that once you make a request to a homeowner to make a selection, they have a fixed period of time in which to make that selection. And if they don't, they would be in default of contract. And that's simply so that you guys have an objective amount of time in which they get to make that selection. So if you were to email one of your customers and say, please go down to the lighting store and meet with, you know, the rep at the store and pick out all the lighting. Once you sent that email to them or once you made that phone call and followed up with an email, they would have, I don't know how many days you'd pick, let's say 10 days, 14 days, 15, whatever it is that you felt comfortable picking, they would need a maximum amount of time in which they had to make those selections. And I I like to do that because I just think it sets the expectation at the contract phase that they're a partner in getting the home done timely. And another way to do it that I've seen a lot of really experienced builders do it, and I love it, is they hand them a selection sheet up front that has the different vendors that they will send them to to make selections and roughly the time frame in which they would need to make the selections by based on the contract date. So that as part of the contract up front, there's sort of your expectations are already on a selection sheet that guides them through the process in which they'll see all the selections that they're going to have to make. And obviously, it's a lot more than anyone I think anticipates that hasn't had a home built for them by a builder before. I mean, it's it's a lot of stress on the homeowner. I mean, I understand that there is a lot to be done um, to get that done timely. Yeah, and I've seen it where you've got the selections deadline can be set as hard dates or milestones tied to by the time that framing is complete, you need to have selected X, Y, or Z or whatever. So I think there's a little bit of flexibility to the builder and how they go about selecting those deadlines when they put those clauses in. I agree. And I think one of the big issues I like to remind builders of is when you have a customer that's not doing things timely or is not complying with certain terms of the contract, and the example here would be the selection schedule, you need to not just text or call them. You actually need to send them something in writing, which I think the least offensive way to do that is by an email reminding them that they're not making a certain selection timely. And that's simply because you want a written record as a builder of what actually happened on the job. You don't want to have to recreate a timeline later if something were to go wrong. You know, anytime you meet with a homeowner on the project or anytime you have a phone call with them and decisions are being made or they need to do something timely, please follow up with a detailed email about what you're asking them to do or what they're not doing. 
All right, great advice. Well, talking about change orders for a second, specifically change order fees, I've always wondered, is it better to spell out like a fixed fee in the contract or keep the flexibility, which would be my preference to assign kind of different percentages based on the complexity of the change order itself? I've seen it done both ways, and I don't have any preference. I think either way is fine. My biggest concern about change orders is that you agree to do too many because that drags the job out. And the secondary one being is that many, many builders do not actually get change orders signed with the homeowner. Jared, you'd be amazed at how common it is for residential builders not to have executed change orders that they still go perform and then hope to be paid for later. And it's just a devastating way to manage your company. Because so often, if you don't have that signed change order with your cost and fee set, often your customer will want to renegotiate the price later. Yeah, I've seen in several builders struggling very much financially simply because of what you just said right there, because they're not tracking their change orders and getting compensated at the time that they execute those change orders. They wait till the end of the project and then they've got big issues with the clients because you can't go hit a client with a $50,000 bill unexpectedly at the end of the project or whatever. And so I've seen actually several really struggle because of that issue. Right. And, and I think that's such a great point is that when you do them cumulatively at the end, your client has a difficult time paying them. And you as a builder have been strapped financially as you carry the financial burden of the project through most of the project. And the other one is, if you don't make them pay for the change order at the time they request it, I mean, other than the obvious fact you're less likely to get paid for it later when you ask for it, is that you're not disincentivizing your customer from asking for too many change orders and going over budget on a lot of the items in their house. And that drags the project out and delays the completion. I mean, forgetting about the financial issue, it it creates a financial issue that I think sneaks up on a lot of builders. And that is, if you estimated it was going to take you 10 months to finish a home, but you agreed to an excessive amount of change orders, and they requested many because you didn't ask for them to be paid for up front, then you will have had an excessive number of change orders. And instead of the home taking 10 months, maybe it took 14. But you as a builder, you really didn't make much, if any, additional profit on the house. But now you've stretched your profit out. Instead of realizing it within 10 months, you've taken it to 14. And that really impacts your annual income as a builder. Yeah. Almost all of us are underestimating the cost of our time. I mean, operationally, whenever you have a change or delay or something that hits you for a few weeks, it's a hand grenade that we don't realize the full impact because it really time is so much more valuable to our overall kind of return on equity for our business than, again, what most of us realize. Let's talk about draws for a second. I've seen some builders utilize preset draw milestone schedules where they draw a fixed percentage of the contract price at certain points along the way. And then, of course, there's the less structured, probably more common, just progress draw system. I think more people use that. Do you have a preference for either? I don't have a preference legally. I've seen builders do it both ways. I do think that a lot of builders that manage their company really tightly and seem to have a lot of success do do the fixed schedule, you know, on progress. You know, they hit certain milestones. Once that foundation's poured, you know, they get 20% 
of the project drawn right there, whatever it is that's set on the schedule. So I do think there's a lot to be said for the simplicity of that and the expectation between the lender, the client, and the builder. So although I don't have a preference, I do think the project tends to run a little more smoothly when you have a fixed draw schedule. I agree for my anecdotal experience, although the, the one complicating factor to that is sometimes a particular lender may not go for that. That's right. And that's the old rule that uh, he who has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> right. So one thing I want to visit with you on, you know, here in Texas, if I understand correctly, which I'll admit I may not, but if I do, it's actually a right of the client to withhold retainage. So I think 10% of the contract price until completion. So when we've had clients that engage their own attorney to review the contract, that's something that their attorney often comes back with, you know, the introduction of retainage into the contract. And for a small builder, that's pretty much tantamount to asking us to forego most, if not all the profits until the end of the job. How do you usually address this? Well, other than telling a builder not to take that deal, I try to work around it. Uh, You know, what you're referring to is Chapter 53 of the Texas Property Code uh, speaks to liens and retainage and these types of issues. So when another lawyer is retained by a client to review the contract before they enter it, into a builder. You're exactly right, Jared. It's pretty common for that lawyer to try to insist on the retainage to be withheld. And briefly, the reason that is, is if there were to be liens filed on the project and a builder withheld the retainage, the liability would be extinguished by properly withholding the retainage so that the liability on any liens filed could not exceed the retained funds. And that is a huge benefit. But in the residential construction world, obviously, it's a management issue for the builder. And I think what you're saying is if a builder withholds 10%, that allows the client to hold almost all of their profit. It's certainly probably their net profit on the job. Yeah. And that puts the builder in a bad financial position. So I think the reality of that in the residential construction world is that almost no trades or vendors are going to accept having 10% withheld on them. So the builder has two choices. The builder either pays the trades in full when requested, or they withhold that 10% from their trade and their vendors. And in this market, in this up market, I don't know that a builder would be able to get a job done with crews and labor if they withheld those funds from them. So it really forces the builder to pay all the funds up front and then hopefully recoup the 10% at the end of the job. And I think that's what you're talking about. That's right. Yeah. And I fully agree. Yeah, there's no way, at least in this market, that you could convince your trade base to withhold 10%. They'd just go go on to the next guy. And the problem with that withholding of the 10% at the very end is if a builder agreed to do that, what would be the trigger for payment of the 10%? I think that's the most critical thing. Let's talk about it if a builder were to agree to it, because believe it or not, I would tell a builder never agree to that. If you agree to have that 10% withheld, the odds of you realizing that full 10% payment at the end of the job are small based on my experience. So if a builder agrees to it in their mind, they need to just understand that it's very unlikely they're going to be paid the full 10% at the end of the job. And I know there's some people listening that would disagree with that, but I'm telling you right now, I know of what I speak, that that will be an amount of money held out as an incentive to get you to perform punch list items at a house that may never end. 
So if a builder is going to agree to have that 10% withheld, you need to define that that payment will be made upon substantial completion of the home. And I would like substantial completion of the home to be defined as receipt of a CO, certificate of occupancy, on the property. And if no certificate of occupancy when the home is livable or when the clients move any items into the home, boxes, furniture, dog bowls, beds, that would also be substantial completion, and the money would be due upon substantial completion. So, you see, you just have to have a trigger to be paid that amount of money. And the trigger cannot be the subjective determination by the homeowner when you, the builder, complete their never-ending punch list. And I don't mean to sound cynical there. It's just that tends to be when they want to pay you, is only once you've completed their punch list items. Yeah, and like you said, that can just be a vicious cycle that never ends. That's right, and they'll keep holding that money out as a way to get you to keep performing on the house, and it is not uncommon for you to never successfully complete that list, and therefore they never pay you the full 10%. My best advice is to avoid a client that would require you to forego the 10% until the end of the job, because those clients tend to be the ones that will be problematic during the job and at your attempts to complete it and get paid. Yeah, well, and and to your point, I, I've been fortunate so far, but you know, we've probably only had a handful of clients that I ever at the end really regretted working with. You know, those experiences, I'm sure we've all had them. Those experiences are made me realize that we're so eager to always negotiate and get a project going and, and get started on a new project. But from my experience, you're better off sticking to your guns and possibly losing a deal than going too far across the table and signing one up that's going to end up in just being a never ending problem for you. That's great advice that I agree with 100%. And the other way I do it, if homeowners are really stuck on this issue, I remind them and contractually have my clients agree to provide them with lien waivers or down date waivers at each draw within a certain number of business days of receiving the draw and paying their trades. So that you know they're receiving actual notarized lien releases throughout the job based on the money that they've paid the builder. Great. Well, let's move on to warranty for a second because I want to want to cover that. So obviously, warranty liability is a major risk in our business. And beyond offering a written warranty, are there any other effective strategies in managing that warranty risk? Well, you know, the best obviously you need a valid legal entity that you operate under, so that if any liability were ever be realized, if a builder was to be sued, they'd be suing. Uh, the legal entity that you had formed so that whatever businesses you have, it burdens the liability instead of you individually so that your personal assets aren't at risk. That's the simplest thing that you can do to manage your liability and manage that risk. The other one is as to the warranties. I know that you said beyond having a written warranty, but you need to have a really good written warranty, and there's not a lot out there. So the second best thing you can do is have a great contract. There's so many contracts I see that are used. You know, a lot of builders have their own contract that, although we joke about it, that it's clear that they created five or 10 or 15 years ago or 20 <laughs> years ago, and, and they wrote it, and they're comfortable with it, and that's the way they've always done business, and that's not a good way to do business. And you've got to be careful about entering into an AIA contract, which has no 
written warranty as far as limiting the risk to the builder. And that's the same with any Trek contract. There's no warranty limitations in those contracts. And not, none of those contracts contain arbitration provisions. And what I mean by that is if, if you ever have the bad experience of being sued by a customer on a home, you don't want to be in front of a judge and a jury of 12 people uh, down at the courthouse. You really want to have a private proceeding in which essentially you have a private judge. So, you know, valid legal entity, a really good written contract, and within that contract, limitations on your liability in the form of an express warranty and an arbitration clause so that you're not stuck in a courthouse if a dispute arises. Those are really the simplest ways to manage your liability as a builder other than the warranty issue. You've got to, uh, that's what I recommend. Okay. Now, what about the third-party warranty companies? I know there are several around, but you know, I've heard that they can get out of almost anything that they want and avoid having to step in and cover an issue. Do you have any indication as to the accuracy of that? Well, every third-party warranty I've ever seen, certainly uh, it's not insurance. So it's a little different in that they have affirmative obligations in that warranty. and But like insurance, they have exclusions, probably for water penetration, right? I mean, there'll be all types of exclusions within that warranty that they could probably cite to. So I encourage builders to use third-party warranties, but I like them to use one of the good companies. And there's three or four significant and reputable third-party warranties in Texas that if you're a member of a local builders association, you're very familiar with. And I ask builders to explore each of those third-party warranties and see what works best for them. I like the ones that have a defined, let's say, a defined failure. If we gave the example of the 10-year structural warranty that might be in one of those third-party warranties, I like the ones that have objective measurements of failure. So when they kick in, and Jared, you may be familiar with the Texas section, American Society of Civil Engineers document that they've produced here in Texas since about 2002 that describes the way in which you're to evaluate the movement of a foundation to see if whether or not it needs a repair. And some of the third-party warranty companies use that document in evaluating whether or not the foundation has failed and whether they would cover the repair in measuring tilt and deflection in the foundation. So I try to tell builders that I prefer that you use a good third-party warranty, reputable, that's involved in your local builders association that has objective measurements of foundation failure and movement. So that way, they can't weasel out of coverage based on sort of subjective language on whether or not the house is what you'll see a lot, unsafe, unlivable, uninhabitable, and those types of things. I prefer to have an objective measurement that has to be reached, and then they cover it. All right. Now, some builders only offer one-year warranties, but here in Texas, the standard practice is this one to 10 warranty. So one-year workmanship and materials, two years on plumbing, HVAC, electrical systems, and 10 years on the structure. I've heard that offering less than the industry standard can actually open you up to more liability. Is there any truth to that? 
There is truth in that. Um, you know, that 1 to 10 came from really the Texas Residential Construction Commission's adoption of the statutory required 1 to 10 warranty in Texas when that law was passed in uh, the legislative session in 2003 and became effective September 1, 2003. That sort of led to the 1 to 10 standard. And also, all of these third party warranty companies offer essentially that 210 component of that warranty standard. So if you offer less than that, you're risking not limiting your liability under the warranties. And, and I'll try to do a quick explanation of that. The Texas Supreme Court has said through case law that builders can disclaim certain implied warranties in Texas. And what that means is if you did not give your customer a written warranty, the law still gives your customer a warranty. You just didn't know it. And that's called the implied warranty. And the warranty we worry about as lawyers and builders is the implied warranty of good and workmanlike construction. And that lasts for 10 years. And it essentially is a bumper-to-bumper warranty on the house in which you guarantee that the home will be built in a good and workmanlike manner. And if you do not disclaim that warranty successfully under the law, you're stuck with it. So the Supreme Court said in a case that came out in about, I think it was 2001, called Syntex v. Boucher, that you have to do three things to get rid of these kind of bad implied warranties as a builder. One, you have to have the homeowner waive their implied warranties in the contract. Two, you have to offer a express warranty in its place. An example would be, Jared, what you're talking about, a 1-2-10 warranty right? One-year workmanship, two-year mechanical systems, 10-year structure. And then three, you have to tell the homeowner what the performance standards are of that 1 to 10 express warranty that you gave them. And if you do all three of those things, you're able to have the homeowner waive most of the implied warranties. But the court said that's reasonable, essentially. You have to do those things, Um, And then you can disclaim these implied warranties. So the risk you run as a builder, and this is a long way of answering a question, the risk you run as a builder if you offer less than the 1 to 10 is that a court could decide, they have not yet in Texas case law, but a court could decide that offering less than sort of the industry standard 1 to 10 was not sufficient to have the homeowner waive all the other implied warranties. So you as a builder could be stuck with sort of all these extra warranties that you've given to the homeowner because you tried to give them an express warranty that was too short in time, and the court determined that was unreasonable. So to me, the bottom line here is that there's it can actually backfire on you by trying to limit your liability beyond what a court might find reasonable. That's okay. exactly right. You said it better than I could. No, well, that, that was that was a great summary. I'd heard that before, but you, you just kind of spelled it out to me for the first time. So that makes sense. Okay, I want to hit real briefly on lien waivers, because I think that's something that a lot of builders need to improve their process and system on that. You know, I've heard that the best practice with lien waivers is to get them notarized, but getting subcontractors to find a notary and scan back a document for every check they receive is understandably a huge inconvenience for them. So is there a simpler way to accomplish this? You know, can electronic signatures be recognized in courts these days? 
Electronic signatures are recognized in courts these days, but not for documents that must be notarized. So, you know, you have to have lien waivers notarized to be effective. So although electronic signatures are binding on all types of things, including your construction contract, if you want a valid mechanics lien contract or you want a valid lien waiver from your subs, they must be notarized with a notary public. There's really no other way to do it. It's still very old-fashioned, and it's certainly burdensome based on how um, we know trades actually work and how our communications with them work. Um, it's difficult and burdensome, I understand, to get lien waivers effectually uh, signed by your subs. But it's it's truly the only way to do it. So I've seen some builders put the little, uh, they get a little stamp that they'll put on the back of checks or put it on, write the language in on the purchase order that they send out to trade. So that's pretty much just wasted ink. My short answer to that is yes. Okay. Depending on what the stamp says. So, so you could have a situation on a check to a sub, but it would be a different scenario. So yes, it's uh, that's pretty much wasted ink. All right. Got it. So this is something that I didn't actually even realize the difference until recently. So I, I want to see if you can explain it professionally here. Can you explain the difference between a conditional and an unconditional lien waiver for those of us who don't know? Well, yeah, let's start with the, I'll do this as simply as possible. Um, and my law partner is a lien expert. He'd probably have a much longer and better explanation for this. But an unconditional lien waiver is exactly what it says. It's unconditional. That means when you or your trade sign that lien waiver, that all terms of what is being stated to be paid have been met. So that means that there's no outstanding bills to be paid. They're being paid in full for whatever it is they're signing, right? And it's unconditional. They're waiving any right to file a lien on any work or materials supplied to that point. A conditional lien waiver, the best example would be you're at the end of the job, Jared, and you are being asked to sign a lien waiver or an all bills paid affidavit by the bank. And you want to have the lien funded, or let's just use a draw. So you, you need a draw funded. On that draw, there'll be bills paid and bills to be paid. So the lien waiver is conditional in that not everything you're being paid for with that amount of money has yet been paid to other trades or vendors. So it is conditional in that not all of the liability on the draw request that you're paying and the lien that you're signing to be paid that draw has yet been realized or paid. But you are listing the conditions upon the lien waiver that will be met with payment, right? So it's conditional. Okay. Let me ask our last question here. So a lot of builders balk at the idea of having to write in the contract the amounts in the lien waivers, especially on fixed price contracts, having to write how much they paid to the subs because the customer's lender may request those lien waivers. And then if they happened to get back to the client, it could turn a fixed price project into you know a book inquest saying, well, you ended up paying less than what you had on the contract or on the budget or whatever. So I guess what I'm asking is, can we just list check numbers on lien waivers rather than monetary amounts? Yes. Okay. Selfishly, that's good to know because we've used in the past lien waiver templates that had the actual amount. And I just, I went ahead and, <laughs> and made the executive decision to move to check numbers and wasn't sure if that was a horrible decision or not. So that's good to know. 
This has been extremely eye-opening and helpful for me. I know it's going to be for our listeners as well. Really appreciate your expertise on these subjects. So thank you for coming on the show today. Anytime, Jared. Thank you for the time. For those of us that would want to get in touch with you and talk to you about your services, how would we go about doing that? Well, the best way to do that is um, either is probably just to email me and my email is james at brstexas.com. The name of my firm is Bush Rudnicky Shelton. And my mobile number, honestly, just call me or text me on my mobile, which is 817-714-8994. Well, James, thanks so much. All right. Take care, Jared. Thank you.